O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the Richmond Hill Gardens, there lives a quiet vision. I am told that the labyrinth on the west side facing the city is a crossroads for all sorts of wild animals who make their way up and down Church Hill under cover of darkness. Squirrels, badgers, raccoons, foxes. It doesn't take too much imagination then to envision them walking the labyrinth in the middle of the night, shoulder to shoulder, into the center where they pause and look out over the city, then make their way out again. The peaceable kingdom of Richmond Hill. On the east side of the garden is Mary, mother of God, sitting Buddha-like, her legs and arms cradling the infant Jesus, a motherly spirit surrounding and protecting her beloved child. During the day, you can hear all of God's children who attend Bellevue Elementary School across the street laughing and shouting as they play. But in the silence of the night, the vision is quiet and simple, a vision of the realm of God, full of longing, hope, and love's completion. The mission of Richmond Hill is grounded in the figure of Mary and her proclamation of God's present and future realm. The Sisters of the Visitation founded their monastery here in 1866 and named it Monte Maria, Mount Mary. Here they prayed for the needs of Richmond. Here they recited Mary's Magnificat each day at evening prayer. Here they invoked the name of Mary, perhaps with the prayer, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Today at Richmond Hill, we still end each day in prayer with the Magnificat, the Canticle of Mary, and we will sing a version of it tonight, the Canticle of the Turning. The scripture Richard just read, known as the Visitation, is the story of the visit of Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, and Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. The story is a simple and straightforward one about two women, one very young, the other mature in years, both filled with longing, joy, and a vision. They meet, the Spirit moves them to prophecy, they spend three months together, and then Mary returns home. There are no angel trumpets here, no kingly robes or treasures, no bright star in the sky, just two humble women with a secret to share with the world. 
God has acted in love and faithfulness, and these lowly ones are to be central to that action. The simplicity of this story is deceptive, though. There are hints of a world about to be turned upside down from the very beginning. This is no calm, innocent Mary dressed in robes of blue and gold, purchasing a layette and furnishing the nursery. As Dorothy Day, founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, writes, If Mary had appeared in Bethlehem clothed, as St. John says in the book of Revelation, with the sun, a crown of 12 stars on her head and the moon at her feet, then people would have fought to make room for her. But no, this is a very young woman, pregnant out of wedlock, who is likely to be cast aside or even stoned to death when she is far enough along to show. And this is no wealthy, respected Elizabeth, married to a wise and well-spoken temple priest, an honored and happy mother with a house full of children. This is a woman who has, until now, been incapable of fulfilling her wifely and womanly calling. This is a woman whose husband, the priest Zechariah, has had his mouth shut by God for his unbelief, while words of spirit-filled prophecy are suddenly pouring out of her mouth. In the world of first-century Judah and in today's world, most people would imagine this story of God's arriving salvation quite differently. Mary would be a princess or a queen in a royal castle with the announcement of the pending birth of a royal child proclaimed in the streets and plastered on the front pages of the newspapers and websites. Elizabeth would be the royal auntie, miraculously expecting a child herself. They both would be in stable marriages to well-respected men who are kings or princes or bishops or CEOs or presidents or prime ministers. I sometimes think we've heard this story so many times and recited the Canticle of Mary so often that we're unable to hear the message that Mary proclaims. What she proclaims is God's radical challenge to the status quo, a complete overturning of the human social system, at least as we know it in most places. Our ears have grown dull. The church's ears have grown dull. Perhaps we need to go back in time and listen to others who have heard with sharper ears to the folk religion and street theater of medieval times. Throughout medieval and early modern Europe, Mary's song inspired the Feast of Fools, a name given to Christmas revels that were celebrated for centuries throughout the church. The Feast of Fools became a literal acting out of the Magnificat, 
witnessing to the God who desired to topple human power structures and to raise the downtrodden. During the Feast of Fools, social hierarchies were ridiculed and lampooned, and the lowly were raised to places of honor and feasting. Even the hierarchy of the institutional church did not escape. As early as the ninth century, a mock pope or patriarch was elected in Constantinople and paraded through the streets on a donkey. As late as 1685, in the Franciscan monasteries, lay brothers and servants put on religious vestments inside out, held their prayer books upside down, wore spectacles with rounds of orange peel instead of glass, blew the ashes from the censers into each other's faces and hands, and instead of saying the proper liturgies of the hour, chanted confused and inarticulate gibberish. The purpose of these actions was not to commit sacrilege against God, though. Just the opposite. It was to bring down from their lofty positions those clergy and professional religious who took themselves too seriously and God not seriously enough. Hearing about these chaotic reversals, these revelries, certainly helps us hear Mary's song with new ears. Two humble women of ancient times filled with longing and expectation, hearing and proclaiming the radical good news of God's action on behalf of the poor and the lonely and the oppressed, hearing it so clearly that it is if it has already happened, and in a sense it has. The realm of God has arrived in the form of two pregnancies which will yield a prophet and a savior, and they are to be a part of this. Who would have thought? This week, many of us will be making visitations of our own to family and friends' houses after almost two years of being separated by the COVID. Our hearts are filled with joy and longing, joy at being restored to community after a time of isolation, but longing also for a restoration to the way things were, which quite frankly may never happen. Our lives have indeed been turned upside down. A racial reckoning has been unleashed. We, as a country, are split politically as never before with peaceful dialogue and attempts to find common ground seemingly impossible at times. And COVID-19 is surging again. At Richmond Hill, we are in between times as well as we go through a rather thorough renovation that is turning us, temporarily anyway, upside down and inside out. At the same time, we look forward with expectation to inviting more and more people here for individual and group retreats, 
daily prayer, worship, and, at some point, community meals. We look forward with excitement to the arrival of our new co-pastoral director, Katie Heishman, and her family. And we seek, hope, pray, and prepare for the arrival of new individuals called to join us in intentional Christian residential community. My prayer for all of us is that in these joyful and yet unsettling times, we will experience the fellowship, encouragement, and support that Mary and Elizabeth were able to provide one another. And may we be blessed to hear the amazing, radical, and joyful good news that these two women came to know and proclaim to many generations. The good news that God loves us and that God keeps her promises. I leave you with the words of Howard Thurman with his meditation, The Growing Edge. Look well to the growing edge. All around us, worlds are dying, and new worlds are being born. All around us, life is dying, and life is being born. The fruit ripens on the tree. The roots are silently at work in the darkness of the earth against a time where there shall be new leaves, fresh blossoms, green fruit. Such is the growing edge. It is the extra breath from the exhausted lung, the one more thing to try when weariness closes in upon all endeavor. This is the basis of hope in moments of despair, the incentive to carry on when times are out of joint and men have lost their reason, the source of confidence when worlds crash and dreams whiten into ash. The birth of the child, life's most dramatic answer to death. This is the growing edge incarnate. Look well to the growing edge. Amen.